Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 31, Normandy and the Succession. Last week, we set the scene for the major struggle that was to drive so much of Henry's reign, that drove his taxation, his justice, the development of his administration, that is, the constant struggle he had to maintain his grip on Normandy, and the resulting burden that that put on his resources. But before we start the episode proper, Let me make just a little digression about something that occurred to me while I was writing this episode, and actually has occurred to me a few times over the whole length of the history of England. One of the things that absolutely amazes me was just how amazingly young people had to take on responsibility. Just in the last episode, Matilda was betrothed at the age of seven, married at twelve, and widowed by twenty-one. The Conqueror was knighted at age fifteen, and was leading armies by the age of nineteen. Edgar the Peaceful was king at 16, Edmund the Magnificent leading armies at 17, and so on. Of course, one of the reasons for this was the relative shortness of life. As we all know, infant mortality was painfully high by modern standards in the Middle Ages. Obviously, it's difficult to have any real level of accuracy, but there are estimates I've seen as high as 50%, although 30% is a much more normal figure. Childbirth itself was also dangerous to the mother, although the incidence of the mother's death for each birth was probably a lowish-sounding 1-2%. to Given the number of children each woman had, that gave them about a 15-20% chance of dying from childbirth in her life. Unbaptised children went to hell, so it was strongly suggested that mothers have water by their sides when they were giving birth. Not for medicinal purposes, but so that the baby could be baptised before it died. And after the perils of birth came the perils of childhood. So, for example, abandonment in babies was common enough for there to be special rules about whether exposed babies needed to be baptised or not. 
and if you survived all of that, average life expectancy was probably around 30 years. Although actually, if you get to the age of 21, things do begin to look a bit better. So you could probably expect to get another 43 years of life if you get to 21. And actually, funnily enough, apparently that's slightly higher there in classical Rome, which I thought was interesting. And just to illustrate this point, an 11th century work categorised the ages of man into four stages. Boyhood was up to 14 years of age, young manhood from 14 to 28, manhood until 48, and old age above 48. So I personally am getting perilously close to old age. And boys of 14 will be expected to take on levels of responsibility that would seriously concern a number of us today. Having said that, the formal age of majority did vary according to your social class and occupation, and generally begins to sound a bit more reasonable in some cases. So one law book asserts that knights came of age at 21, which actually sounds fine, doesn't it? But soakmen, i.e. a specific class of peasants, came of age at just 15. And this isn't just aristocratic disdain. There's a borough law in the late 14th century that says that a burgess was of age when, and I quote, he knows how to measure ells of cloth and to tell a good penny from a bad one, i.e. once he's grown up in his occupation, as it were. The age when minority ended was a key factor for medieval kings and lords, much given to profiting from the wardships of miners. But for many, responsibility came early and came hard. In today's episodes, we'll see people like William Cleto and Geoffrey Plantagenet playing pivotal roles and being involved in warfare in their mid-teens. But now on to the gun-bleeding stuff and the struggle for Normandy. Henry was to face three rounds of revolt and warfare as his traditional enemies tried to dislodge him from Normandy. The first round wasn't long in coming and was kicked off by Louis the Fat. In 1109, he demanded that Henry hand over the powerful castle of Gisor, based in the Vexin, would you believe, and to do homage for his fiefs. Henry probably predictably refused, and the result was a running war in the Vexin between the French king and Henry's vassal, Robert of Beaumont, the same Beaumont who had been with Rufus in the New Forest. By this stage, Robert of Belem had joined the court of the French king, presumably with William Cleto in tow. Meanwhile, Belem's brother, the Count of Ponthieu, to the north of Normandy, was raiding Normandy with the Count of Flanders. This is a chaotic confusion, a chaotic mass of war and struggle with little structure and no clearly defined campaigns. But Henry's firm hand is evident throughout. In 1110, he acted against a group of barons he didn't trust and he threw them into jail for two years until the immediate danger was passed. In 1111, he put together a coordinated plan with Theobald of Blois. While Henry attacked Anjou, Theobald occupied the attention of the French king with an attack into Brie. And then in November 1112, fate at last delivered Robert of Belém into Henry's hands. Louis sent Belém to Henry under an agreement of safe conduct to negotiate with Henry. Henry didn't hesitate, had no truck with any of this safe conduct stuff, seized him, and put him in prison in Wareham Castle. And that, finally, was that Robert never emerged from his prison, although nobody's quite sure when he did in fact die. The Belem lands were forfeit to the crown. Clearly, there's a bit of outrage at Henry's action, but in the scale of things. Given that Belem was accused of all manner of torture, the outrage was somewhat muted. All of this was too much for Henry's enemies, and they caved pretty conclusively. Folk of Anjou came first in March 1113 and agreed that if Henry really wanted him to pay homage for Maine, then go on then, he'll do it. And then Louis caved, threw up his hands and gave Henry everything. 
agreeing to Henry's overlordship of Gisors, Maine and Brittany. Once again, Henry used marriage as a way of trying to seal the deal. He gave William Atheling, now ten years old, in betrothal to Folk of Anjou's daughter, who is also, by the way, called Matilda. We had a mass of elf gifus a few hundred years ago, didn't we? And I give you fair warning now that we're going to have a mess of Matildas, if that's the collective name for Matildas. War number two in the series was not of Henry's making. In 1115, Theobald of Bois ambushed an ally of Louis, and as a result, the battle was on. Now, the sport of Bois was absolutely essential for Henry, and it meant that whatever madcap scheme Theobald embarked on, Henry had to back him up. And let me tell you, Theobald was a madcap venture kind of guy. Unsurprisingly, the battle lines were drawn again pretty quickly. Falk gave serious consideration to whether he thought of Henry as his father-in-law, or as the centuries-old enemy of the Angevin. And he promptly sided with Louis, as did Baldwin of Flanders. Even more dangerously, the French side was joined by a group of Norman nobles, who then realised Henry's worst fears by declaring William Cleto as the Duke of Normandy. Through 1116 to 1118, there was a semi-permanent state of war in northern France, but in the autumn and winter of 1118, things came to a head, with two strokes of luck for Henry. Firstly, Bolden of Flanders was fatally wounded in the northern marches of Normandy, and secondly, Henry was defeated in the Battle of Alençon by Folk of Anjou. Now I am of course well aware that defeat in battle might traditionally be considered a bad thing rather than a stroke of luck. But in this case it turned out absolutely fine. Because it got Henry and Folk talking. Because Folk had bigger things in mind. He wanted to go on crusade. So in 1119 he allowed the marriage of Henry's son and heir William Atheling to go ahead with his daughter and he settled the inheritance on her. This was superb news for Henry, and it transformed his situation. Falk, meanwhile, was to have a check at history in Outremer. His first trip lasted from 1119 to 1121. When he returned, it was clear that the Holy Land was in his blood, and he became closely attached to a new movement that had just been set up called the Knights Templar. The Templars at this point were very much at the start of their history, but were soon to start their meteoric rise to extraordinary popularity and riches amongst the Western nobility. And then in 1127, Folk returned to the Holy Land and married the heiress of the throne of Jerusalem, Melisande. After a rather unromantic political struggle with his wife, he became the king in his own right. He and Melisande have a fascinating history which I'd love to go into, but the long and short was that he and Melisande were pretty successful rulers of the Holy Land until Folk died in a hunting accident in 1143. Henry was now looking good, with Louis the Fat left without allies. And you might imagine that this would be the perfect moment for Louis to make a diplomatic withdrawal, but not a bit of it. As far as he was concerned, this was the perfect time to launch a fresh attack. He crossed the river Ept with his protégé William Cleto and he set up camp at Les Andalis. That this campaign ended in a decisive battle was probably due to confusion and poor information as much as anything. Louis advanced further into Normandy, probably heading for a bit of wasting, unaware that Henry was actually just a few miles away. And on the 20th of August, the two armies kind of ran into each other. Louis was put to flight and fled back to Les Andalis. There are a few interesting things about this battle at Bremoul, not because they're particularly exceptional, but actually because they're so very typical. Firstly, the size of the armies was absolutely tiny. There were 500 on Henry's side and 400 on Louis. 
This was probably because the battle was fought between the household knights of each side. But even so, Sama or Marathon, it ain't. And then have a guess at how many knights were actually killed. Give up? It's three. Which probably makes Bremerville a safer place to be than crossing the road in the village of Pratt's Bottom. Because after all, they were encased in all that armour. And anyway, both sides were much more interested in capturing their opponents and getting some money for their ransom. Which is generally what happened at Bremoule, where over 140 of Louis' knights were captured for ransom. And incidentally, amongst the captured was Louis' standard and warhorse, which Henry then gallantly and generously returned, before demanding payment for the knights he'd captured. It's an illustration, I think, of the nature of war at the time. We are a country mile away from the modern concept of total war, of course. War was the occupation of the nobility at the time. Fighting and hunting is what they did. It's not quite that it's a game, but it does have the feel of a game to some degree, and there's a code of conduct that fits around it, such as capturing not killing knights, such as returning your enemy's horse and kit. It's not that it wasn't dangerous, I've no doubt that if you're a common soldier who struggled to pay the rent, let alone a ransom, you could expect a very short life in battle indeed. And then to bang on about my previous theme, the winning army here was the one where the knights dismounted. Once again, Henry kept 100 men on horseback, but the rest faced Louis' cavalry charge on foot. The charge as it happens was badly coordinated and disjointed, and therefore ended in disaster. Well, for three of them anyway. But despite its size, Bremoule did make a difference. Although Louis tried again, invading in 1119 and complaining to the Pope, he had to accept that he had once again failed to replace Henry with Cleto. And in 1120 he met Henry and formally confirmed Henry in his rule of Normandy and took homage for Normandy from William Atheling rather than from Henry himself. So in 1120 Henry was absolutely on top of his game. He was in control of Brittany, Maine and with the defeat of Belém was again unchallenged in Normandy. The Holy Roman Emperor was his son-in-law. It was all looking good. But suddenly it was all to turn to ashes. As you can imagine, crossing the channel between England and Normandy was a frequent activity for the royal court, and although it was hazardous, it was an accepted part of being with the royal court. So in November 1120, there was a party atmosphere as the court prepared to return to England, fresh from the year's successes. An enterprising captain, called Thomas Fitzstephen, even came to offer the service of his super-fast ship, the White Ship, to the king's son, William Atheling. The Atheling accepted happily, and he and 300 other noble passengers loaded up and started partying. Some of the party spotted trouble, and they wanted no part of it. Fascinatingly, Stephen of Bois, for example, left the party and took another ship, apparently objecting to the sight of drunken teenagers. All of the partying meant that the ship was late casting off, and it had to hurry to try and catch up with the rest of the fleet. Unfortunately, it had also given time for the captain to get drunk as well. But the ship sped out of the harbour, and then it immediately hit a rock, capsized, and sank. Everyone on board was killed, with the exception of a butcher from Rouen, who had wrapped himself in a couple of skins before they left. A few bodies eventually washed up on the shore, such as that of Richard, Earl of Chester. As Odoric Vitalis wrote, he whom a king begot was food for the fishes. So how do you tell a father that his son has died? How do you tell a king that his only son and heir has died? And how do you tell a king that his only male heir has died when the result could be years of chaos? Basically, no one at court dared tell Henry, 
until at last Theobald of Bois persuaded a young boy to throw himself at Henry's feet and tell him the awful news. Henry's wife had died years before, so Henry faced this news alone. He was overcome and he fell to the ground unable to hide his grief, until helped up and taken away to a private chamber. And one of the main causes for the years of anarchy that follow Henry's reign was made here pure and simple. But nonetheless, Henry was made of stern stuff. He picked himself up and within two months had married again to Adelaide, daughter of the Duke of Louvain. Sadly, the marriage was to produce no children, despite the fact that Adelaide would later bear children, and that up to now, Henry had produced over 20. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The death of the Atheling gave encouragement to Henry's enemies and it led to fresh war in 1123 and 4. Volk of Anjou came back from the Holy Land and when he arrived back he demanded Maine back. And then a group of rebels revolted in Normandy, again in favour of William Cleto. The rebels were led by Falk's uncle, Ormory de Montfort. But painfully for Henry, he'd also drew in Walloran of Moulin. Painfully because Walloran was the son of Robert of Beaumont, Henry's great supporter throughout his reign. Walloran and the Beaumonts, in general, had been richly rewarded by Henry, and he really might have expected just a spot of loyalty. Falk of Anjou then did the best to drive the rebels forward. He married his daughter to William Cleto and he gave the county of Maine to William as his fief. These relationships are quite interesting, aren't they? I mean, just a year ago, Falk and Henry had been beating seven bells out of each other. Then they stopped and Falk relied on Henry to look after the place while he went away on crusade. And he's back and straight away he goes after Henry again. But again, it's, it's just a bit like a game, but this time with real people and real consequences. But again, Henry proved himself adept at the game and more than a match for his opponents. He used his relationship with the Holy Roman Emperor and got him to march on Reims, distracting Louis the Fat. As it happens, the Emperor had to turn back, but it served Henry's purpose. Meanwhile, he started talking to the Pope about this scandalous marriage between Sybil and Cleto, which was to result in the marriage being annulled on the grounds that they were too closely related, a decision which, of course owed a good deal more to diplomacy than truth, light, justice and the desire for a robust gene pool. So Henry whooped them diplomatically. And he also whooped them militarily. In 1123, he took a number of Walloran's castles. And then in March 1124, we get the last of Henry's rare battles at Bougtherald. The battle occurred almost inevitably around a siege, that of Walloran's castle of Fatville. Walloran had successfully routed the besieging forces and he resupplied the castle in the teeth of his enemies. Henry's castellan of the nearby castle at Evreux, Ralph of Bayeux, got to hear about this and he put together a force of 300 of Henry's household knights and he set off to try and trap Walloran's forces. As Walloran's slightly larger force, of possibly around 350 knights, emerged from the Broton Forest on its way back to the castle at Beaumont, the two forces met in an open field. 
The chronicler here puts an interesting quote into the mouth of a knight called Odo of Burling. Odo says, The best plan is for one section of our men to dismount for battle and fight on foot, while the rest remain mounted ready for the fray. Let us also put a rank of archers in the first line to compel the hostile troop to slow down by wounding their horses. Which rather neatly confirms everything we've been saying about military formations at the time. Warren recognises what this dismounting means, that the enemy was committed to the fight, and he took up the challenge, charging with 40 of his knights, and then committing further knights to the charge. But Odo's formation proved robust, and as horses were shot down and the attack faltered, Odo's mounted knights would also then have charged, and the rout of Walloran's forces was quickly completed. Eighty of his knights were captured, including Walloran himself, and taken to Henry in triumph at Caen. The revolt was officially now over. The fate of the rebels varied. Walloran himself spent five years in prison at Bridgenorth and Wallingford, before being released and resuming a full role at court and in Henry's confidence. A model of revolt and then forgiveness that we've seen a few times before. Hugh of Montford, on the other hand, had a less pleasant time and groaned in fetters for 13 years, while a number of knights were ordered to be blinded by Henry so that they could not trouble him again, presumed these were knights that he couldn't ransom. And as far as effective challenges to Henry's rule in Normandy is concerned, that is effectively that. There's still something more of our story to go, though, since I think we should find out more about where William Cleto ends up. William moved back to the court of Louis, and in 1127, Louis had one more go at helping to get his protégé's career back on track. He gave him his queen's half-sister in marriage, and gave him land in the French Vexin so that he could raid at will into Normandy. But then in March, the Count of Flanders Charles the Good was knifed while at prayer. Louis saw his chance, and marched into Flanders with an army and William, and made William the Count of Flanders. Unfortunately for William and Louis, there were a number of other claimants with just as good a right to the inheritance as William. And as soon as Louis was gone... They came out of the woodwork, heavily encouraged by Henry's money and influence. Despite a victory in battle against his rival, William was reduced to a small area in the south of Flanders when in 1128 he died of his wounds after a fight at the siege of the castle at Alst. You do have to feel a bit sorry for William Cleto, and there's a book to be written here, surely, isn't there? Spending a childhood in danger of your evil and powerful uncle and wandering round the courts of France to find a way to recover your lost inheritance and to free your father, who's still incarcerated at Devizes by order of Henry. Unfortunately, of course, I suppose, the story doesn't have a great ending, does it? But in the best spirit of Hollywood, maybe we could do something about that one. The most important thing for Henry for the rest of his reign was to get the succession sorted out. And events gave him a small help when his daughter Matilda's husband, Henry V, died childless in 1125. Suddenly there were possibilities, and Matilda was ordered home. In 1126, at the Christmas court, Henry asserted her rightful claim to the throne, and on January 1st, 1127, he assembled the barons and made them swear that they would recognise Matilda as the heir to England and Normandy. This was high politics and high theatre. The Archbishop of Canterbury went first to solemnly swear the oath, then David, King of Scots, and Adelaide the Queen. The next to be called was Robert of Gloucester, the King's Bastard, who was sitting in a place of high honour to the left of the King. But Robert gestured instead to another of the King's favourites, Stephen of Bois, the King's nephew, who, as we've heard, had been showered with gifts of land and power by Henry, 
He was Count of Mortain and Boulogne, the brother of Henry's closest ally, Theobald of Blois. So Stephen stepped forward to take the oath. It's a significant moment. Stephen taking the oath he was to break so completely less than ten years later, and the two men, who were to be such bitter enemies for so long, seemingly friendly and at ease with each other. Henry knew that he was in trouble, there'd never been a Queen of England before, and he needed to do everything in his power to bolster Matilda's claim. So the next thing he did was to drop a note to Falk of Anjou, and rather stunningly suggested that Matilda should marry Falk's son and heir, Geoffrey Plantagenet. Here was the ultimate diplomatic play, the union of the houses of the rivals who had fought for supremacy in northern France for over a hundred years. But Henry knew that there was trouble coming, and that Matilda would need practical and strong support. Who knows if this choice was a good one? I mean, on the plus side, the Angevins were close and strong, but on the negative side, it was asking one hell of a lot for the Norman barons to accept the idea of an Angevin so close to the seat of power. It is possible that Henry's initial intention was actually that Geoffrey himself would become king on the strength of his marriage. If so, he had to quickly abandon the idea when his barons made it clear that they would not accept an Angevin king. In personal terms, the marriage was not a great success. Matilda was 26 and had been the empress of the Holy Roman Empire. By all accounts, it had turned ahead a bit. Either way, she had a very strong will and a demanding nature and a haughty, arrogant manner that throughout her life would generate a strong response, either hatred or intense loyalty. Meanwhile, Geoffrey was just 15, but equally he was no pushover and he clearly expected to be in the lead of this relationship. So within a year, Matilda was back with her father in London. Henry kept her with him and had his nobility once again take the same oath to Matilda just to make sure that if anybody had any doubts about Henry's intentions, they were put straight. Who knows what father and daughter conversations went on over the next year or so, but finally in 1132, Matilda was sent back to her husband. I'm absolutely guessing, but I'm thinking the extended conversation probably went something like, Look, he's just a poxy two-bit, no-good cotton-picking count. I'm an empress. He thinks he's going to take over, and I don't want to have anything to do with it. Henry. Daughter, I don't care. Get back over there. Lie back, think of Normandy, and do your duty. Matilda didn't take this betrayal easily, but she seems to have been an all-or-nothing kind of girl. So she threw herself into the task, and decided that, right, fine, if her father wasn't going to stand by her, she'd be on Geoffrey's side from now on in. Some of that played to Henry's wishes as well. So in 1133, she gave birth to a son, Henry, and then in 1134, to another, Geoffrey, and then finally, William, in 1136. In 1133, Henry called his barons together yet again, and this time they had to swear allegiance to both Matilda and her sons. But in other ways, Matilda's actions were less to Henry's liking. In 1135, he went over to his daughter's house to dangle the grandchildren on his knee, in which he apparently took great joy. Sadly, it didn't turn out to be a happy visit, and was instead full of family quarrels, because Geoffrey was getting pushy. He didn't want to wait for his Christmas present, he wanted it now. He demanded to be given some Norman castles and receive the homage of the Norman barons. Matilda now backed her husband up. More than that, the chroniclers accuse her of actually whipping the quarrel up and making it worse. Matilda had decided that if her father wanted her to be at her husband's side, be at her husband's side she would be. Henry was livid and saw conspiracy everywhere, and he knew that if Geoffrey pushed this, he'd ruin everything and set off the concerns of his barons that this was an Angevin takeover. They quarrelled bitterly, but hated or loathed, Henry was no longer in control of the future, 
and he'd run out of options. He stormed off. He did what any king did when feeling grumpy. Or did what any king did actually when he had any kind of feelings. He went hunting. And on his return from a good day's hunting, he had a good pig out on a whole load of lampreys to make himself feel better. Sadly, lampreys had been forbidden him by his doctor. Now, given the competence of medieval doctors, that could actually well be a recommendation to eat lampreys, but for once, the medieval doctor seems to have been right. Henry fell ill, and he died on the 1st of December, 1135. So the Lion of Justice, Henry Beauclerk, was finally dead after a reign of 35 years. Before we talk about him generally a bit, there is one thing I forgot to talk about with Henry, which is his reputation that it was he that started the slow rehabilitation of the English. I think this is based on three things. Firstly, he marries Edith, a woman of Anglo-Saxon descent. He reportedly speaks English, and he refers on his coronation to the laws of good King Edward the Confessor. There is clearly some truth to this, and two of those were clearly an attempt to win English support. But actually, we don't think he does speak English, or at least there's absolutely no conclusive evidence. And there's absolutely no evidence at all that he treats Normandy with any less importance than his father or brother, or advances English men to positions of power. So to be honest, I don't think we should make too much of it yet. The contemporary chroniclers recognise that there was good and bad in Henry, but that whatever you thought of him, what followed in later years was to throw his good points into very clear relief. He had his faults, shared by his father and brother. He loved his gold and silver, he taxed and exacted mercilessly to get it. But he did have an excuse. It was, after all, his job to keep his empire together. He showed brutality at various points, such as throwing Conan of Rouen off the top of the tower and that blinding his enemies incident. But he was ultimately an extremely successful king of England. He was a master of diplomacy, playing the dynastic game of war, marriage and alliance with consummate skill. He was a good, competent administrator and established changes in government and justice that would last him out. He has to go down as one of our most successful kings and the last of a pretty astounding family of William and his sons. Though he wasn't the conqueror's favourite son, I think he would have approved. And if I can unwisely give a plug to one of my competitors, you might want to listen to the Rex Factor podcast, who I'm pretty sure gave him their Rex Factor accolade. So I promised last week that we'd put Henry into his grave. Henry's not quite in his grave, but he is dead. So that therefore brings us to the end of this week's episode. Just before I finish, a couple of things about what's coming up. Quite a few of you have sent comments and asked questions about the more social aspects of the history of the time. So I thought it'd be well worth doing a couple of episodes about life in the early Middle Ages. So the plan is that what we'll do next time is cover the anarchy, and then after that we'll have a bit of a general catch-up. I say next time because the unthinkable has happened, and I'm going to go away for a bit of holiday. So there will sadly be a break in the history of England for two whole weekends. And the next time you'll get an episode will be the first weekend in September. I'm sorry about that, but even podcasters have to do something else every so often. So thanks very much everyone for listening and have a really good few weeks until we talk again. Keep all the questions and comments coming through. And then next time we'll start with the anarchy, when Christ and his saints slept and when England learned, if it needed to, of the importance of firm government.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.